welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm Heidi Rupke, coordinator of the Lenten Preaching Series at Calvary. Our guest today is Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin is a Potawatomi and Christian author and speaker whose first book was Glory Happening, Finding the Divine in Everyday Places, and the upcoming book, Native. Her first book explores her relationship with God through vignettes and prayers of ordinary life, like gardening, parenting, neighbors, and travel. Caitlin, I'm so glad to talk with you today. We had planned to host you in Memphis a few weeks ago for our Lenten preaching series, but COVID-19 intervened. Where are you now, and how are you doing? Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I am at my house in Atlanta. Uh, We've been inside for a few weeks now. So yeah, so I've been doing all my work, you know, virtually, like we all have. And yeah, my book comes out in less than a month, so I'm really, it's a weird time because there's this energy that's building to release the book. And then also, you know, just the heaviness of the world and hard things. So it's a really strange balance to try to find between the two. It's not really fun to try to sell something during a pandemic. You know, it feels strange, but I'm also really grateful that words can help people and heal. Have you found some new outlets for your writing and your thinking these days? Not a lot. I think just because I think we're all just trying to cope and kind of grieve and get through it. Um, I've I've started playing guitar and singing again, which is something I've not done in a long time. Just, you know, playing, just looking up songs on the internet and playing them just for fun, which has actually been really therapeutic. And I wasn't expecting that. And it's been really, really nice. Yeah. I think a lot of us have had some unexpected spaces open up Yeah, over the last few weeks, um, yeah. not only schedule wise, but attention wise. Right. I'm a big fan of Krista Tippett's program on being. So I'm going to go ahead and steal my first official question right out of her playbook. How would you describe the spiritual background of your childhood? My childhood was really interesting. And I actually, I talk about this in my new book, um, that my childhood is sort of split into, I grew up Southern Baptist. So the religious background of my childhood was Baptist, but my, my father is Potawatomi. And so when I was younger, we lived in more native spaces, if you want to say it that way. And when I was nine, he left and my parents got divorced. And so then it was kind of, you know, those parts of my identity were a bit divorced from me as well. So it's kind of like split. And um, so it was really interesting, but I grew up in a really creative household. And um, I think that that bled into our beliefs and our spirituality as well. Me and my siblings all are really creative people. And so music and movies and Uh, being outside, those were all just kind of parts of who we were and still are. So it's such a tricky question. And every time I hear her ask it on the podcast, I love it. And then I'm like, what would I say? (laughs) You know, it's a, it's just a hard question. Today's your day. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. Who knows if I answered that right. But yeah, Baptist would be the religious background, but we weren't at home, very strict, like very conservative Baptists in the churches that we went to, they were, but we weren't that way at home really. Have you always found the divine in everyday places, like the title of your book? 
Yeah, I think that that's always been a part of um, who I am. I don't know what the right phrase or term if it's, you know, being a mystic, but I think that as children, we all have this curiosity built into who we are to see the divine in the world. You know, I think that that's naturally a part of who we are as humans. And so I've always felt connected to nature or, yeah, just wanted to have these special moments of holiness ever since I was little. How do you see our relationship with God as the ones who are sought by the divine or the seekers of it? That's a really good question. Um, I feel like as with a lot of things, there's an ebb and flow that at times, maybe it feels more like we're uh, being sought. And at times we feel more like we're seeking. I really do think that there's, you know, between those two, all of this gray area where it's just a little bit of everything, a little bit of both. Um, I've definitely had seasons of my life where I feel like I'm really looking and trying to figure it out. And then there are seasons where when we're so exhausted and don't know how anymore that sometimes, you know, the divine just finds us and reminds us again of who we are. And I think that that, yeah, I think it just happens in different seasons of our life. I think that that's just the way it goes, you know? Where do you feel like you are right now? Um, probably seeking a lot. Yeah. A lot of seeking and asking and reimagining, which just leaves a lot of open ended answers that we don't really know, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now. And what does the time of seeking look like for you? Um, just a lot of, I'm not really sure who or what or where God is, but I know that there's something that I'm going to keep looking for, you know, there is the divine out there. And so we just have to keep trusting each other to look for it and to look for it together, you know, which I think is where like interfaith dialogue is so beautiful because we're all seeking this out together just from our different perspectives. And I think that there can be, you know, really beautiful solidarity in that instead of seeing, seeing our differences or, you know, pushing at each other in ways that we don't agree. We can also like, you know, look at, at our seeking out of the divine as something that we have in common as human beings, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think an important word you brought up there was trust Yeah, that seeking acknowledges that we, we don't have all the answers that we want, but that there may be some answers at some point. Yeah. Your book quotes widely from authors and literary sources beloved by mainline congregants but your voice and your stories delve deeply into personal territory, which can be slightly unsettling for people who recite prayers and follow a familiar liturgy. Where do you place yourself inside the broader Christian church? Or where do you feel more, most comfortable? Yeah, I am. Um, I've never been someone who has, who has felt, maybe when I was young, I felt very Baptist, but in adulthood, I've never, um, felt like I fit any denomination. So it's been really hard to kind of try and figure out. And currently we aren't going to church anywhere. Um, our family isn't going to a church regularly. And so it's been really interesting. And I, I remember a few years ago when I first started um, doing things with the CAC, the Center for Action and Contemplation with Richard Rohr, um, that I took a course on Franciscan theology. And it was it was just a time when I was really seeking really hard, you know, trying to figure out what I believed and kind of dismantling some of my childhood beliefs. And that was a space where I felt 
like I could just sit and rest there for a little while. You know, there's some similarities with indigenous beliefs. St. Francis, of course, had this really beautiful relationship to the earth and to animals and other creatures. And, and uh, that was just really comforting to me and still is. So I think there are some spaces within, if you want to call it the mystic tradition, but more so just the, this older tradition within the church even um, that has a bit more room to imagine and believe um, has been a place that I have found myself most comfortable when, you know, in a time like this, we don't go to a church. Some church spaces, physical spaces are difficult for me, but understanding kind of this uh, background of Christianity and even getting away from Western thoughts of Christianity has been helpful for me. Do you find that there is an intellectual or communal space where you feel comfortable? You mentioned Franciscan theology, uh, even if it's not a particular denomination or building, is there a community of people where you? Yeah, I, I've found over the last few years that um, like Twitter and some of these social media spaces that I'm in a lot, it's just this mod podge of people who are, we're all really seeking and asking questions. And it comes back to earlier what I said about interfaith dialogue. It's kind of the same idea just with seekers, people who are asking these big questions about God. But I Uh, Like during, during this time when we've all been at home, I've been attending a middle church, which is um, my friend, Jackie Lewis. It's her church in New York city. And um, it's a really diverse church. It's diverse in beliefs. It's diverse in people. Um, It's been a really beautiful place. So, you know, settling in there every Sunday morning from home and just, you know, watching these live streams has been really beautiful and reminds me that, you know, there are people who are coming to these ideas of God and the divine faith from these different places. And, and is that feels strange to say that the, the wider expanse of belief actually is comforting to me, but I think it's because growing up Baptist, everything was so boxed. Like this is how you believe and this is how you're saved. And you know, those things that when I realized I could, I could just understand the mystery of God a little more, that it's, that it's bigger and wider, that actually comforted me in a strange way. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but it's just what I feel. So I, I think I had somewhat of a similar experience coming from a a tradition that had a very neat and very beautiful, very thorough theology. Mm -hmm. And then coming to an Episcopal tradition as an adult where the mystery was embraced. And it was such a relief to me to um, worship a mystery without all of the answers that um, one Sunday. And I was like, this is, this is who I've been my whole life. And I didn't know it. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad I'm not alone in that. (laughs) I always think it's weird. It's a strange, you know, idea because usually closer, you know, smaller containers are usually more comfortable, but sometimes you need to break out of them. You know, that's, that's a, that makes sense to do that in life. So you're definitely not alone. (laughs) Caitlin, you've spoken in other venues about your Potawatomi heritage through your father's side. You tell the story of the trail of death where when the U S militia forcibly removed more than 800 members of the Potawatomi band from the great lakes region, and relocated them in the plains region of Kansas and Oklahoma Around 60 people died on that march. How did this story come to you and how has it changed you? 
Yeah, I um I didn't know this story growing up. I I didn't know that our tribe had a forced removal. Um we didn't talk a lot about our cult. You know, we we were we were Potawatomi, we are Potawatomi, but it wasn't like something we talked about actively. And I think that we know that in US history the way that we're taught about natives makes actual natives and the things that we've been through it makes us afraid to talk about our identity or to, you know, so a lot of families are kind of silenced out of having these conversations. And so I didn't grow up knowing these things. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I found out about this as I was just researching and learning about our tribe. And yeah, from the time I learned it, it changed a lot for me because it put into perspective just some of the historical trauma, like in my own family and in my own tribe. And, you know, to know that that you have ancestors who had to go through something like this and survived it. You know, it shows this depth of resilience, but also that it matters now that I learn our language or that I do these things because we've been through so much that has tried to strip us of who we are, you know. And so for me as an adult and having children and trying to constantly, you know, being on this journey of learning and understanding and coming back to these parts of my identity that, you know, were taken away from me just because it's America. I think that it just happens like assimilation is just embedded in our systems. Yeah. It, it definitely opened up uh, layers of grief that I didn't know I had. And so going to therapy and, you know, talking through these things and being in community with other native people who have been through similar things and, you know, in their tribes or in their own stories has meant a lot. And, and I write about it in my new book, um, in Native. I, I write about this a lot as well. And it was a big part of that because I wanted people to understand, you know, where I was coming from as I was writing these stories and, and what they mean to me. So what prompted you to write your latest book? Um, oh was it your personal journey or something else? Yeah, I think, um, I think so. I, because when I wrote Glory Happening, I was already really, you know, deconstructing and, and asking some big questions, even about, you know, even ideas of like leaving behind some of the more patriarchal language for God. And some of those, you know, I was really starting to process through that. And so this was kind of just the next step of the journey was, you know, if I'm seeing and understanding God and the divine and mystery differently, you know, and then I'm understanding my own identity more and more, how do those things actually affect one another? And, you know, so the next thing that made sense to me was to then write about this journey. And I, I was meeting so many people who were experiencing similar things in their own identities, you know? So I think that it just was something that I felt like was the next leg of my journey, you know? And, and to just share my own story, not to speak for all indigenous people or all Christians or all women or, you know, but just to share, this is what my journey has been about. You've lived in Western states as well as our neighboring Arkansas and your family currently live in Atlanta. Your writing refers to some specific places and times of life, but in a way that includes multiple readers. As a mother myself, I can vividly recall the years of chasing toddlers and the wonder of a newly mopped floor. <laughs> but your stories aren't just for women of a certain age. Will you read a short passage from your book? Yeah. This is called The Fountain. Catch it if you can. The present is an invisible electron. 
Its lightning path traced faintly on a blackened screen is fleet and fleeing and gone. Annie Dillard. At the feet of the skyscrapers in my city, there's a large park. And if you walk far enough into that park, there's a giant circle of cement with water jets in the ground. The jets shoot fountains up into the sky, iridescent streams of water reaching up and returning in an arc to the hot ground that birthed them. There's a path around it where children can ride their bikes, a big patch of green for picnics and frisbee throwing. When people are around, it's never quiet there. The air fills with laughing shrieks, teenage girls dancing with their two-year-old cousins, all splashing with eyes closed, and we see our boys come alive. Elliot, with every extroverted corner of his soul, is electrified by these stranger friends' smiles, by the glory joy around him. Isaiah eases in slowly, but once the cool water touches his feet, he fights at the jets of cold with an imaginary sword, slaying the water dragons around him. I slice another piece of cucumber and open a cheese stick for the boys and watch them dance. Everyone stands at their own jets, but eventually they all end up back at the center, where the biggest jet sits underground. It seems to have millions of jets all in one spot, and for a moment all is quiet as the anticipation builds. Then a giant burst of water shoots up and out and all around, filling every space, soaking every part of those laughing children's bodies to the core. It's like the hearth of a home where we all gather in, where comfort and joy and fullness are found. It's the epicenter and the life source. Sometimes it feels as if humanity is slipping away from us, that we've lost sight of each other and ourselves, that we've forgotten how to care, how to be alive, how to play and enjoy each other's company. But then we come to the fountain. We see heaven communing on earth in the heat of the day at a stone splash pad in the middle of Piedmont Park. These are the kinds of places made for the celebration of humanity, places that level the playing field and call all of us children, all of us into the summertime baptism, where those laughing voices become the holy sounds of angels gathered at a throne of pure and benevolent grace. Thank you. I love that one. Thank you. You describe the wonder of this moment and this fountain. Do you feel like the wonder of it comes to you in the experience of it, the writing of it, or both? Um, Both. I actually remember sitting and I remember writing that story at the fountain. We were just sitting there and, and I was doing exactly what I was saying. And I, I was like writing it as I was doing it. And I wasn't, I was just thinking about the beauty of this place and, and watching. So it was, this story was actually happening like in real time as I was writing it. And that doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes you, you think back on experiences and then write them, but this particular one, you know, it was just one of those moments where it was, I could feel it all and really felt like I needed to write it down before I forgot the beauty of that moment in that space and that time. Where do you see fountains for people today? Where do you see hope? I really believe that, um, like I've mentioned earlier, this this word has been really important to me and the word solidarity. You know, there's so many things affecting all of us in so many ways. And we're seeing, I don't know, there's just a lot of heaviness in the world. And, you know, solidarity work is this work of, of being with one another and really um, holding space with each other for our grief and for our questions. And, solidarity work extends beyond 
you know, whatever boundary lines we've set to separate from each other, whether it's religion or politics or whatever it is, we're going to choose to see each other and honor one another and, and then, you know, stand up for what's right and, and how to respect and take care of each other. And I don't know, I just think solidarity work, I've seen so much hope in those kinds of spaces where people are embracing this work together. And then on a simpler note, just I think nature and children are both things that just continue to pull us out of ourselves and help us to see this beauty that I think as adults, we get wrapped up in the heaviness or in our work or in, you know, stuff that's real, but it's so good to just have, you know, the earth and the creatures of the earth or, or the children we're around to just pull us back out again and remind us to just stop and breathe. I think that that's really important. And I think it always will be. Thank you, Caitlin. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today through a screen (laughs) rather than in person, but hopefully we'll be able to do meet up in person one of these days and um, talk about your next book. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lint 2020 has been unique in a variety of ways. Many of us have been asked to stay in our homes almost exclusively as one way to protect the public health. I'm classified as a non-essential worker, so I'm at home, with huge thanks to those who are working in healthcare, public safety and services, and others providing essential care. This division of labor got me thinking about the word essence, which is defined as the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something that determines its character, or in my paraphrase, Essence is what is left when everything superfluous has been stripped away. It is our deepest being. As many of the usual noises and activities of my life have fallen away, new sounds and new silences rise up. These spaces can be beautiful most unexpectedly. A long pink earthworm wiggling joyfully in a stream of cool water in the gutter, or the daily growth of leaves outside my bedroom window, easier to notice now that I am less rushed each morning. I sometimes wonder if attuning to this deeper hum of life and spirit is one window to a divine presence that is always there, but sometimes muffled. The shadow side of this quarantined life is certainly present too. The silent allows some of my demons and fears to speak loudly, and there is no one outside of my immediate family who can hug me and help me face them. But I trust that God is with us in the shadows too, also listening and waiting for reconnection, and for healing. The Calvary Podcast, Linton Preaching Edition, is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us out of estrangement into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.